0: So as we bring 2 Samuel 24 to a close, which will end this book, remember the highlights of our last study? Remember David's awesome song as he is remembering his life? So he's remembering the goodness of God? Remember David's last words and then that last chapter in chapter 23? We read about David's Mm -hmm. mighty men. Those men that had come to him, ragtag and yet, all of a sudden, they've become David's mighty men over the course of this year. Certainly a great look at discipleship. You know, it's certainly a great way to end a book. The man after God's own heart reflecting on God's goodness and his faithfulness. Hearing the deeds of the mighty man, knowing that they first came to David, so jacked up. But over time, David became their captain. Does it get any better than that as we wind this book up? Well, actually, if you've read ahead, you know it gets worse. So keep in mind that this is the only person in the Bible that God declares this about. Here's what God says. God raised up for them David as king. To him also God gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, if you say in your heart, wait a second, that guy David, he had some real issues. If you think that, you're an older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And if you are the older brother, you remember things like this, lied on more than one occasion, was deathly afraid of man multiple times, took matters into his own hands because he doubted God's protection, took the things of God and used them for his own survival, almost took vengeance on wicked, foolish Nabal. He had multiple wives and concubines, deceived the priests at Nob and it cost them their lives, all 70 of them, lived with the enemies of God more than one time, acted as a wild, crazy dog to help God out, lacked more than a few parenting skills, and that's only 1 Samuel. We haven't even got the 2 Samuel yet. 2 Samuel highlights are, if you're an older brother, committed adultery, wrote a death certificate, lied a bunch more, got angry and did nothing about it, ran out of the palace because his son was doing a hostile takeover. That's how the older brother would look at it. Doubting God's provision and protection again. And now, in chapter 24, a census. That's what's before us tonight. Now, if you say in your heart, wait a second, that guy did all of this, how can that be the one that God wrote about? Well, if that's your heart's attitude towards David, that's why you don't have a heart like David. (laughs) It's really simple. If David was put on trial today in modern Christianity and the Christian community, they would have probably wrote him off a long time ago. And they would have went after someone more like Saul. They would have. Because the church is quick to judge today. See, judging is assuming what I think I see rather than actually something that you see. See, David knew in his heart that apart from God, he was and could do and could be nothing. But see, that's what qualifies you to be a man or woman after God's own heart. And he was one who who God said will do all of my will. And he did. Can he say that about us? I don't know. Before we crucify the guy, we better make sure that we're on record saying we're going to do all of God's will. We got a whole book of it. So before anyone thinks anything, says anything bad to David, you better make sure you're doing all of God's will. Yes, David was a man of many failures like us all. He had his own dish issues to deal with, like us all. But he is a man that I believe opened, uh, penned apart from God's spirit dwelling upon me. I can do nothing. The very thing that Jesus said, David wrote. The thing that David had was a heart for desiring God's will and not David's will, even though he blew it a few times. Can, can we say the same? Because that's... That's the issue here. It isn't his sin. It isn't our sin. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. But are we doing God's will or our will? See, in the process of time seeking to do God's will, yeah, David failed a little, just like all of us do. Yet David was a man of passion, but also a man of compassion. He was a man of justice, but he was a man of even a greater man of mercy. He was a man who doubted, but even greater a man that trusted And that would be trusted God. A man who didn't offer up excuses, but rather offered up praises. Never an excuse in his life. He claims everything he did. A man that carried his life in a way that grabbed the attention of God and truly sought to do God's will over his own, even though he stumbled a few times along the way, just like we all do. So let me ask you, would you be encouraged as you you look at David's life, or would you look down upon it like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal that looks down on his younger brother that squandered everything, and yet the father was open to the son's return? Would you realize, like Jesus said and David did, and this is the problem for man today, that of myself I can do nothing? See, the problem with the Laodicean church in the last days is I, myself, can do everything. Matter of fact, I'm just, I'm good. I'm well off. I'm, I'm needing nothing. There's such freedom and lack of pressure when you can identify with this single statement that I, have myself, I can, do, I can do nothing. Well, that's David's life. There's still a couple more principles he's going to teach us, one that will change your life forever. Chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. I would circle that word again. This is the history of the country. This is why this country is still in turmoil to this day. Because God loves this people and he isn't done with them yet. Look at the other nations that were around back then. Most of them are all gone. Ever met an Amalekite lately? How about a Gibeonite? Or a Philistine or an Ammonite? Ever met a Jezreelite, Carmelite, Gershurite, Gibeonite, or Gerzite? I don't think we have. They may be out there, but I've never met one. And yet God is alive and well and loves His people, the Israelites. And so, yeah, again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. It's still going on to this day. And He moved David. See that capital H there, and He? You better cross that out quickly before you all of a sudden you create some blasphemy in your book. Yeah, but it's in my Bible. No, man put that in there. And he moved David against them to say, go, number Israel and Judah. So how did God move David? Who knows? Anybody read ahead? Well, God did. not The devil did. In the newer translations, one of which I possess, it has that he capitalized. That is an error of man. In the original languages, there's no capital letters. Somebody put that in there. You're going, okay, what do you got for proof? I don't know. How about 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verse 1? You all should look at it so you don't believe me. But you should actually look yourself. But look what it says there in 1 Chronicles 21. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Wow. That's quite a problem that the modern Bible translators have, isn't it? They're making God moved him, but that would mean God moved David to do evil. And first, oh, no, sorry. In James chapter 1, it says, you know, God tempts no man. Okay, so we all clear here? You should go back there and write Satan instead of, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and Satan, and write that little footnote right there, 1 Chronicles, and Satan moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Otherwise, when you read this next year, two years from now, five years from now, you're going to go, yeah, here's David blowing it again. No. Or here's God making David do these things. And man, God makes me do those things. And that's why, man, I got issues with God. No. (laughs) It's the devil. It's very clear here. Well, how did Satan do that? I don't know. I think, well, actually, I know God allowed him to do this to fulfill God's purposes. But God didn't allow the devil to do this that David would fail. God allowed this to happen that if David would look up, he would succeed. But he doesn't look up. So he's probably failed because of pride, going, I just, you know, maybe he's planning one last battle. He's old, one last battle before we go out. Maybe he wanted to find out if he had enough strong men to take him on, because that's what they're gonna number. They aren't gonna number all the people. They're going to number the fighters. So rather than relying on the Lord, he counted the men and he did some calculations. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan, that would be extreme north, to Bathsheba, extreme south, and count the people that I may know the number of the people. Okay, that I may know. See, there's some reason he wants to know. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Now this interests me. You know why? Because this is Joab counseling the king. Remember Joab? Joab's... God's going to use Joab as David's way of escape. God will never tempt you. God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will always provide a way out. Well, here's David's way out. Joab. Hey, David, we don't have to do this. David, why do you want to know this? His commander saying that. Trust in God, David. We don't need to trust in the numbers. We don't need to do that. Counting the people to determine one's strength—that's what David's after. Not a good quality of a man after God's own heart, and in doing so, he violates God's law. The only time God allowed or accepted numbering was if offerings were to be presented after, presented to the Lord after the numbering. That's the only time we see it. Exodus chapter 30, verse 12. You can read all about that. But there's not going to be any offerings presented to the Lord. David wants to find out how strong he is. Nevertheless, the king's word, watch this, prevailed against Job and against the captains of the army. Who are those captains? His mighty men. At least certainly some of them. I'm sure he had lots of them. So not only was Job, but Job and, and, and the mighty men and, and the captains is like, Hey, David, why, why do we want to do this? We don't need to do this. What do you want to do? Tell us. We'll go take them out. Remember, they just took bat- them out in the last battle without David. Just tell us what you want to do. So I like this look here. I mean, this is Discipleship 101. You know, you think about Jesus and his disciples. When those guys started with Jesus, how useful were they to him? Oh, Mike gives them credit. Not a lot. (laughs) What, what, What was their usefulness in the beginning? Oh, okay. Thank you for that. Uh, they, he, he did. Peter did put out his boat, so he got in his boat. So I'll give you that. So that's that's not a lot. So that, that's a little something there. But at the end of the three plus years, how useful are the boys to God? 100%. Game on. 100%. That's the whole. That's the whole aspect of discipleship. You don't get a lot out in the beginning. But as you pour into people's lives, the whole point is you get 100% out at the other time. That is unless people are selfish along the journey. Then you get get nothing out in the beginning, you get nothing out at the end. And that's sad because you wasted all that time. But I like this look here. David's commander and all of his captains, this whole ragtag bunch of people, these people that were distressed, discontented, and in debt, when they first came to David, all of a sudden, I mean, these guys have been trained by David. All of a sudden, they're saying, hey, we shouldn't do this. Man, I like that. The only way that they would know that they shouldn't do this is if David, the man after God's own heart, had taught them this principle not to do this. And so here they are, all of a sudden, the the students teaching the teacher, hey, I don't think we should do this. It's not going to bring honor and glory to God. Plus, God's going to be not pleased. It's a great look at discipleship. Therefore, Joab, the captains of the army went out because they're also submitted to their captain or to their king. Went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they go everywhere. And they crossed over the Jordan. So they're over there where Reuben, tribe and Noah it. Yeah Reuben Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh are on the right side. They crossed the Jordan over there and they camped in Aor on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and towards Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of yeah, I can't pronounce that. Then they came to Dan Jaon, so they're far north and then to Sidon, even farther north, and then they came to the stronghold of Tyre even farther north. So they're way up north. And to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, I don't know why uh, the Israelites are living there, but they are. Then they went out to the south Judah as far as Besheber, so they're way down south. So they're going far south, far east, far west, far north. They're, they're counting, but they're not counting everyone. So when they'd gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Imagine that. Now, granted, it's only the size of New Jersey. No mail-in census forms, no internet, no cars, no going door-to-door to to get the people they miss. 290 days, grinding away in the desert on camel docking, probably most of them by foot. They complete this task that was given to them to do, but Here's what I want you to think about. What could they have done with those 290 days? Could those 290 days have been used for something better? Could those 290 days have been used to go fight a battle? Remember, the anger of the Lord has been aroused against Israel. God needs a current reason, it seems, to bring some discipline upon the nation of Israel. But just think of how many battles they could have won during that course of 290 days. And when I was a high school pastor in Santa Barbara, I used to always say, look, go to Bible college for one semester. Just one semester. Don't go to college yet and get a degree that you're not going to use. Just just go to college for one semester. And the reason I said that was because so many people that I knew went to college and never used the degree. So it's like, look, why go there and waste four years of your life? Why don't you go to Bible college for three months, one semester? Turn off your cell... Well, actually, they didn't have cell phones then. Well, some of them did. And just turn them all off and just check out. Tune out. Some did, some didn't. You know, spend three months away from distractions because you're going to set the course for the rest of your life. I mean, that's what they could have done. They could have done something. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men. Okay, that's who they counted. Valiant soldiers who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So 1.3 million armies strong. The people were not counted, or the people that were counted were 1.3. But again, there are only valiant men who could handle the sword. In 1 Chronicles, it says that Joab didn't number the men of Benjamin, so there's more men than this. So this nine-month process is now eating away on on David. I like this. He did something. He's a man under under intense conviction of God. God isn't sending a a, a Nathan to him. I like this. We we, we today, tonight, this has to be something that we grasp, that we push down into every person that we know. It's critical. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. He, he was sensitive to his own sin. See, we can become callous to our own sin to where if people point it out, we get mad at them. But it's only because you've been callous to it. In the beginning, it might have cut a little bit. and You go, oh, and then the next time, oh, and then after a while, you go, I can't believe they're saying that to me. Man, you're callous. You and I, we want to be sensitive to our own sin. It's critical. You want to teach new believers something? This is it. They need to be sensitive to their own sin. Not what you point out or what somebody else points out. They just need to be sensitive to their own sin that the Holy Spirit points out. So David's heart's condemned here. I like that. It's a great look. It's certainly what makes him a man after God's own heart. Not a perfect man. That man does not exist. And if you look down on people, you're a Pharisee. Sorry, that's just what you are. you got Pharisee blood running in your veins. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I have done. No excuses. Please notice that. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Get a good look at why... God said, David was a man after my own heart who will do all of my will. You know, no excuses. Zero, nada, nothing. David did something wrong and his heart condemned him and he went to the Lord. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I, it's me. I've, done, I've sinned greatly. What, Lord, take it away. Take it away. Great picture. See, our prayers need to sound something like that if you desire to grow in your walk with God. But too many in today's modern Christian version, they might read this and kind of go like this. And David's heart was saddened after Joab had numbered the people. So David said, Lord, I live under grace. I might have made a clerical error in executing my plan here, but now, you know, I'm talking to you again. That's good, isn't it, God? I pray, O Lord, please help your servant feel better about himself. For the devil made me do it. After all, it's all about me. You know, that darn devil. I'm sorry. Listen to your own prayer life. Only you know if it's David's or today's. Today's modern English version. The reason you don't want it to be today's modern English version is because of 1 John chapter 1. 8, 9, and 10. If you don't know it, you need to turn there. So, quick detour. All the way to the end of the book. All the way to the end of the book. It's the principle. It's it's the theology of what we're seeing David live out right here. Well, in a little bit of modern theology on both sides of David. 1 John 1, 8, and 10. 8 through 10. Bookends for holding the Christian living all, all together here. Real critical. If we say... We have no sin. It's not my fault. It's my husband's fault. It's not my fault. It's my wife's fault. It's not my fault. It's the guy I work with. It's not my fault. It's the person at school that did that to me, and now I deserve the right to feel that way. Oh, okay. So you have no sin. That's okay. Be honest. If we say we have no sin, oh, what, what does it say? We what? Oh, whoa. That's serious stuff there. And the truth is not in us. David didn't do that. Here's David. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what David's doing. That's the look he's putting forward. But verses 8 and 10 is today in the latest uh, Apostate Church. If we say we have not sinned, I didn't sin. Quit judging me. I didn't sin. I'm not judging you. I'm here because I'm your friend. Hey, I didn't sin. Okay. If we say we have not sinned, we make him him. Capital H. That's right here. We make God a liar, ooh, and his word is not in us. Nothing good there. See, if we don't call it what God's word calls it, there's no forgiveness. So I like this look. Lord, I've blown it. That's David's words, at which point he received the peace of the Lord. He received that forgiveness. All of a sudden, he takes ownership for his sin without blaming others. We've got to do the same. Or we are lying to God. Or, we on ourselves. In these last days of self-love, we all live in. It's critical, team. Now, with sin, there's always consequences. Some is minor, some is major. Verse 11. Now, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you underline that may do it to you this is that that i may do it to you this is another look at why david's the man after god's own heart okay it's real critical that i know you may look at that and go well what is that it's nothing here no it's something that i may do it to you okay god wants to do something to who to david now that's not exactly something you want to wake up to right But there's a little insight as to how God views sin in our lives that eats away and devours us. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? What's that going to do to David? Go on a diet? It's not going to cost him anything. It going to cost him to depend upon the countries close by for food. maybe a little mercy from other countries. But David has wealth. So that's not real loss to David's house if there is a famine. Maybe for the people, but not for David. Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Been there, done that. But David was too old to go to battle. His captains said, you're not going out anymore. So no real cost to David here. Yeah, they may pursue the the armies of Israel, but probably not David. So that's not going to really cost him anything. So he's protected wealth, protected his mighty men, his captains. Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Oh, David's exposed here. He's totally exposed. David's exposed to the plague here. So what would you do? Got the well? Take the easy way out, even though God says I'm going to do this to you. Let you let somebody else fight your battle. So David's exposed to the plague here, but you know what else he's exposed to? The mercies of God. Mercies of men, mercies of his generals and his captains, or mercy of God. Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Come on, what do you think? What am I going to go tell God? I love this relationship that Gad had with God. Now I say that five times. Gad had with God, Gad had with God. <laughs> I mean, I love this. Hey, just give me your answer so I can go back to God who sent me. Lord, I want that. I want my relationship that tight. Look at his last words in the last part of verse 13. Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. That's awesome. And David said to God. I said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. I don't want to fall into the hand of the neighboring countries for food. I don't want to fall into the hands of my generals. Well, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. There's a great spiritual principle there. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into, into the hand of man. What David is saying is, is I would rather take my chances with the merciful, loving creator of the universe who shows mercy, who has shown mercy, than to fall into the hands of ungodly man or be, de- be dependent upon ungodly men. So the Lord gave him what he wanted. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. Okay, it's, remember how many days is going to be? Three days. From Dan, extreme north, to Bathsheba, extreme south, seventy thousand men of, of the people died. I'm pretty sure those are seventy thousand valiant soldiers. I have no proof of that unless it's in the Book of Chronicles. I didn't look, but I'm I would be pretty confident it's seventy thousand valiant soldiers in three days. I read somewhere among the Orthodox. Orthodox Jews today, if you have a party or something, you're counting off it, 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 to form teams, they they say not one, not two, not three to protect themselves. They don't want to do what David did here. Because, see, they always find little wiggle, wiggle, little wiggle things. Here, we're not going to go one, two, three, so we're just going to go not one, not two, not three, not four. It's probably true knowing how those guys work. So the census on David's part cost him 70,000 men. Like I said, probably men of war. The effects of sin are like throwing a stone into a lake. Can you kind of picture that in your mind? Maybe you've done it before. You know, you throw a stone in a nice flat lake, and the ripples, they go all, they go everywhere. They go all the way till they touch the shore. They, they don't stop till they hit the shore. And that's what the effects of sin are. They go all the way, and they affect everything along its path we all got to be careful and guard against it here. Please don't think in your heart you would never do this or you'll never do that. No, we're all capable of all sin. Guard against the weaknesses in your life. Guard against the strengths. Don't think, don't guard, don't go, I don't need to guard against that. That's my strength. Oh, man, you're already in big trouble. Guard against everything. David took his eyes off the Lord. Seventy thousand died at the hand of the sword. Fathers, if you take your eyes off the Lord, your family will suffer. Soon and if you sin, the eyes of the non-believer are on you. You've got to be careful. And when we all do sin, let us run back to those who saw or those we sinned against and ask them for forgiveness. Even as we ask Jesus for forgiveness and receive his cleansing, that's keeping our witness tight. It's critical. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, so the number would have exceeded seventy thousand. So, so he's he's covered everything flat. Well, actually, it's not flat; it's very hilly. But now he's heading the this angel's heading into Jerusalem. Who lived in Jerusalem? Yeah, King David did. And see, David wanted to fall into the hands of the Lord because he knew he was merciful. When the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, it, the Lord relented from the destruction. See, David was counting on the mercy of God to come through. And said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. We're good. Now restrain your hand. Now restrain your hand from what? From killing any in Jerusalem. So, did God change his mind here because someone like David is crying out to stop? God change his mind here? That's a yes or no answer. Of course, it's a trick question. <laughs> so, did God change his mind here? Yes or no? He did it. Or because we serve a gracious and merciful God, God pulled back part of the judgment of of God on the nation of Israel. We see that in Moses. God brought a plague, 70,000 died. God brought plagues against the Israelites when Moses was around. Remember, God would say to Moses, I'm going to smoke these people, and Moses would be flat on his face saying, God, please don't, please don't, don't. So did God change his mind? Mm, I don't think so. God never changes his mind. First Samuel 15, 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Ezekiel 24, 14, I, the Lord, have spoken. It shall come, and I will do it. I will not let go, nor will I spare, nor will I repent. Titus 1, 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Hebrews 6, 18, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie. God doesn't change his mind. Our prayers don't change God's mind. And it's a good thing they don't, amen? Can you imagine if your prayers could change God's mind? God's got this going, got this whole thing building for you, and you go, oh, I don't want that. God says, okay, I'll give you a tour. That would be scary. That would be kind of selling out short. So then why does God pull back here? Well, why did he pull back when Moses prayed? And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor when God spoke to him to pull back And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Is that what the Lord was looking for? Is that what he was really looking for? Again, I, I pray you can see David's heart in this. It's me, God. It's all me. God, I'm the one. God, I want you to be against me, not against the people here. Man, this is hard after God material here. But please notice that God had a different plan. Rather than listen to David's prayer of take my life and spare the people, God has a different plan here. And so God came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of God, went up, to the top of the mountain, I add, as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from, from the people. Please notice that the purpose of this mountaintop was going to be forever changed. When David comes, it's a mountaintop that's used for threshing the wheat. You know, they always pick the highest points and they throw the wheat up and the chaff blows away and the grain settles. Well, that's going to change. As David comes, we're going we're to build an altar to the Lord here. We're going to change what the purpose is of this mountaintop. Now, Aruna said to David, because he was king and gracious, to his king, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for bird sacrifice and threshing implements and the, the yokes for the oxen for wood. The yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Now, if David was like the religious ones in Jesus' days or the bad priests in the Old Testament, they would have taken the deal, accepted the offer. And went for it. But David's not like that. Verse 24 tells us what's in David's heart. Then the king said to Arunah, no. But I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. With that which cost me nothing. Um, Only underline that if you're going to get that tattooed on your heart. God can do that. I'm not going to offer anything to the Lord unless it costs me something. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Why? Because 70,000 dying would never take away the sinner or appease the holy God. But the shedding of innocent blood here as they offer these sacrifices, that certainly would, at least it would cover over it. And David knew that. So David offered away. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. If you read the parallel passage to this story in 1 Chronicles 21-26, you'll find that God accepted David's offering here by consuming it with fire from heaven. You know, David's building away, and all of a sudden, (coughs) disappeared. Went up all in the smoke. Holy fire came down from God. It says that David built the altar to the Lord and placed the burnt offerings on the altar. Then David called on the Lord and God answered from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. And the very next verse of 1 Chronicles 21 says, so the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. See, God always worked off his mercy principle. Remember Moses' life, the first 40 years, he, he goes out and tries to do what? He goes out and tries to deliver people in his own strength. Because Moses' life is marked in 40s. And then the next 40 years, Moses doesn't want anything to do with the people of Israel. So when God shows up at age 80 and says, hey, Moses, I want you to go deliver my people. Moses says, forget that. I I don't care about those people. They're stubborn, stiff-necked. I don't know. Don't want anything to do with them. Remember, God gets angry with them. So he sends it. And then for the next 40 years, Moses is so in love with those people. Every time God wants to smoke him, Moses is down in his face. That's that's you can't you can't pick Moses' life apart. You have to take the whole thing, from trying to do it in my own strength to hate the people to Lord, you take my life and wipe it out, but keep these alive. Same thing David's doing. Hey, hey, hey God, just take me, take me and let all the other people live. So often, God would say to Moses, separate yourself from them. I'm going to wipe them out. And time and time again, Moses would fall on his face before the Lord. But God knew that because God is outside of space and time. He wanted Moses to know that. And Well, here's David, seeking the Lord, begging God for mercy, taking ownership of everything for this plague. That's that's God's heart. So God sends a Gad. And this end of this book here I think it's the most important key spiritual principle to David's life if you get this one the chances are you got them all but if you miss this one well you you don't want to miss this one David says and you can look at it right here that he will not approach God or worship God unless it costs him something boy the church today needs to learn that what does it cost you David was not looking for some cheap, easy way out in worshiping God. We can't miss this. See, a true sacrifice must cost you something. That's what the very word implies, sacrifice. It's got to cost you something. See, if your worship of God does not cost you anything, time for you to dump your God a mammon and worship the true God. It's got to cost you something. To offer something that didn't cost you anything, it's not a true sacrifice. You got that? To offer something that didn't cost you anything, it's not a true sacrifice. You just did it out of convenience. It's a plague in the church. So what does the worship of God cost me? I need to ask myself that. What does the worship of God cost you? Or what did the worship? Or what has the worship of God cost you? Or what has the worship of God cost me? I know, you don't, know, God does. You know, David was not going to worship God unless it cost him something. I hope you can hear the heart of God in this. It's Critical. Great lesson for all of us to learn as we seek to be men and women who seek to have a heart like God's that will accomplish all of God's will. If you're going to accomplish God's will, It's going to cost you something. It is. It has to. It has to. There's no way you can accomplish God's will without it costing you something. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you your reputation. It's going to cost you financially. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to. But then God says, I'll never be a debtor to any man. That means God's going to pay it all back. But that takes faith. But that's a whole other Bible study. This place where David bought the threshing floor was on Mount Moriah. Wow, that should sound familiar. Yeah, it's the very same place where Abraham came to offer up Isaac to the Lord. It's also the same place where Solomon's going to build the temple of the Lord here in a few books. It's also the top of Mount Moriah where Jesus was crucified. If you want to some crazy stuff that went on here. Think of what it cost those guys. Think of what it cost think about what it cost Abraham. Think about what it cost David. Think about what it cost Solomon. Well, not much because <laughs> his dad provided everything for him. But then look at how Solomon turned out, too. Not real good. Think about what it cost God. See, it was in this place that Abraham offered his son. In end, it's the very same place that God offered up his son. And he offered up his son, a living sacrifice for all. Think about what it costs God. Abraham offered up his best. David offered up his best. God offered up his best. As we th- go through our week, we need to offer up our best team. Great picture here. You yeah, got any Bible to back it up? Yeah, Romans chapter 12. Somebody read it out loud. Verses 1 and 2. Stand up, read it when you got it. Verses 1 and 2. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good, acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, so, God, so even we even read in the New Testament where we're supposed to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, and God calls that reasonable service. It's not extreme. Now, trust me, you look around Christianity and you go, man, you're like trying to make us almost like a cult or something. No, God calls it reasonable. This is the picture. This is the picture. That's the theology. In Santa Barbara, people would drop off their junk at the church all the time, thinking that we could use it. It was all junk. It didn't cost them anything to drop it off, but you know why they dropped it off? Because that way they didn't have to pay to take it to the dump. So it didn't cost them anything to drop it off. It cost God money to get rid of it because we'd have to hire a dumpster, and we'd do it every six months and throw all their junk in a dumpster and haul it away. I don't know why people can just say, Hey, sorry, sorry. They never came to me because I would have told them it was junk, we don't want it. <laughs> they always went to somebody else. But I mean what can you do with a broken washer and dryer? I mean, why take it to the church? I'm sure they can fix it. We've had it for thirty years, it's gotta be good. I mean, just give it to God. They can use He can use all that stuff. Crazy. So what does your worship of Jesus cost you? See, I think we need to be like David here and change if you must and say and do and allow your worship of God to cost you. Please don't give God the leftovers or the junk you don't use. God doesn't want the junk. God wants the best. Our heart must be, I want to give God the best and then do it. Amen? Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives here. Lord, we want to be found in that place where we're offering to you. Lord, like David here, his best, where our worship of God does not is not it's not free, but it cost you his son, your son. May it cost us something as well. Lord, you know what that needs to be in all of our lives.